Now, you have maybe heard the phrase, your goose is cooked, right? But do you know where that phrase originated? To, to, to tell you the history of it, I got to go back a little bit, okay? I got to go back to pre-Reformation reformers, all right? So when you think about the Protestant Reformation, if there's a name who comes to mind as the person who kind of lettered or ushered it in, it's probably Martin Luther, okay? But before Luther, there were other reformers who began to reform the Catholic Church. And one of those guys was a guy who appeared a century before Luther and who Luther really looked up to and respected. His name was Jan Hus. Hus was from uh, what is modern day uh, the Czech Republic. He was born in the late 1300s. And when he was born, he was born into abject poverty. And he wanted to get out of that. He wanted to escape poverty. So he looked around and he thought to himself, okay, who is it who like lives well and who people respect and admire? And he thought, it's the Catholic priest. I want to be a priest so I can live well, I can wear nice robes, and people will respect me and honor me. And so that's what he does. He becomes a priest. And rather successful, really. He, uh, he's leading a church, uh, the, the Bethlehem Church in Prague sat over 3,000 people. But even from the very beginning, even when, uh, when Huss didn't even know Jesus, you can almost see like the waves of, of reformation kind of blowing through his bones because he preached in Czech, not in Latin, which that was unheard of at the time. It was always preached in Latin, but he wanted the people to be able to understand what he was saying. And so he preached in Czech. He was also, at this time, he was becoming influenced by the writings of, of John Wycliffe, who was trying to give the Bible really back to the people. And Huss discovered the Bible. Really, he, he hadn't really read it before. And he begins reading the Bible. And as he's reading the Bible, he meets Jesus. And he says this. He said, when the Lord gave me knowledge of the scriptures, I discharged that kind of stupidity from my foolish mind. The stupidity he's talking about is just empty moralism or just religiosity for the sake of being religious. And so he says, I, I got rid of all of that, and he devotes himself to the scriptures, and then he does something really revolutionary. He begins in his church to preach the Bible to people. I don't, for us, that, that might not sound like much. Then it was incredible. And the Catholic Church turned against him. And they pleaded and they went to Pope Alexander V. And they said, we, we got to excommunicate this guy. He's, he's, he's taking the Bible and he's giving it to the people. And so the Catholic Church did just that. They excommunicated him. Uh, from the Catholic Church, but he was still allowed, because he was in Prague, he was still allowed to preach. And so he continues to preach at uh, the Bethlehem Church there in Prague. Well, Pope Alexander V dies, and then comes the anti-Pope John XXIII, okay? I don't want to get into the weeds of Catholic history with you, but just, just for a little bit. Uh, the Catholic Church refers to Pope, or anti-Pope John XXIII as the anti-Pope because they, they look back and say, he wasn't really of the d divine line of Peter, so he didn't have the right to be Pope. Um, and so they call him the anti-Pope. Anyway, they thought the divine line went to Pope Gregory VII, who eventually became Pope. Anyhow, uh, that's, that's another conversation for another day. Anti-Pope John XXIII, who is acting as Pope at the time, 
begins to preach to the people about indulgences. And he introduces indulgences to the Catholic Church. They're all talking about indulgences, selling indulgences, these type of things. And Huss, well, he preaches against it from the scriptures. And as he's preaching against it from the scriptures, he infuriates the Catholic Church. He's already mad at him. But now it's not just the Catholic Church who's upset with him. Now it's also the government who's upset with him. Because the king at the time, well, he was taking a cut from all of those shares of the indulgences that were sold, right? And so the Catholic Church and the government, they're in bed together, and now Huss, he's interrupting everything, and he's infuriating everyone. And so they conspire together, they label him a heretic and an insurrectionist. And so then what do they do? They ask him, they tell him, hey, if you just surrender peacefully, everything will go okay for you. Well, he does, and they lied to him. They, they, they pressure him. They try to force him to recant his uh, preaching of the scriptures, his faith in Jesus. He refuses to do so, and, and he says, uh, hey, I appeal to the ultimate judge, the only fair judge, the only true judge, Jesus Christ, and I appeal to him alone. And at the same time, God, I pray for my enemies who are doing these things against me. Well, the Catholic Church, they have him burned at the stake, okay? Fast forward 100 years, and there's Martin Luther, and he's telling this story about Huss. And by the way, when you talk about reformers, like if you wanted to hang out with a reformer, Martin Luther is the reformer you want to hang out with, okay? He's just a lot of fun. He's kind of a wild man. I mean, you read his writings, they're full of just, they're, they're just colorful, okay? He's, he's brilliant. He's like, I mean, you, you th- think about John Calvin, you know that name? He's just a bookworm, okay? Like, if you invite him to a party, he's just going to, like, sit in a corner and read a book or something. He's, he's no fun. Uh, Zwingli, if you're, if you're familiar with Earl Ur- 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 Zwingli, uh, you got to keep an eye on him. He just, he's buttering up all the ladies in the room, okay? So, you know, he's not the guy you want inviting to the party. It's Luther, because he's a jokester. He's full of color. He's, he's, always, he's always saying stuff. Luther's the guy you want. And so Luther, he's telling the story of Jan Huss, and Huss in Czech means goose. And so he says that the Catholic Church cooked the goose because Huss defied the Pope. And that's where the phrase came from. This basically a guy who discovers the scripture and becomes really a missionary to his people, Jan Huss. Well, you look back before Huss, and there was Jesus. And Jesus was the ultimate example for Huss. He was one who was labeled and branded a heretic and an insurrectionist. He was one who went through a sham of a trial. And he was one who prayed for his enemies from the cross. And so one of the things that we've had just that really, I think, just a privilege of going through this year is is Mark's gospel. And as we've gone through Mark's gospel, especially these last couple of months, we're, we're just looking and been able to kind of look in a detailed kind of a way at the Passion Week. And so as we head toward Easter on our calendars, we're just giving this look at the Passion Week and everything Jesus went through that week. And now, well, we're continuing in the trial that Jesus faced. Last week, if you were with us, it was the religious trial. This week, it's the political trial. And, and one of the things I want to do is we kind of look at all this. I, I want to begin to bring it all together so that you can really see Mark's theology and how he's been building up to this throughout his gospel. So let's go ahead. We'll check this out together. Mark 15, 1 through 20. Mark 15, 
1 through 20. John Mark writes, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he asked them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having him scourged, Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. So the trial is a sham. And and the sham, really, it just continues. Last week we looked and Jesus was taken before the high priest. And that's where the trial started. It would have started about 4 a.m. that Friday morning. So 4 o'clock in the morning, middle of the night, he's taken before the high priest. And it's a predetermined verdict, right? They knew before the trial even started, Jesus is guilty and he's going to die. And so they come up with the death penalty. Now, in those days, what was common, what was the rule of the law of the day, was if you reached a death penalty verdict, okay, if you knew you were going to crucify someone, then the high priest, they would take a night to sleep on it, they would confer together the next day, and they would just say, you know, yeah, we're right. This, this is what needs to happen. Okay, and so that's how it would work. Well, since the trial took place at 4 a.m., they consider morning started at 6 a.m., and they said, you know what, that's basically the night. We'll call that sleeping on it. Let's just deliver them over to Pilate. So they break the rules, right? They kind of just kind of fudge a little and justify what they're doing. They rush him over to Pilate, and now the political trial begins as Jesus stands before Pilate. And you get the idea that Pilate is really kind of almost intrigued by Jesus, almost kind of like, amazed, really, that Jesus is the guy who they're saying is this insurrectionist, this one claiming to be king of the Jews. And I imagine because he's looking at Jesus, and he's just scratching his head. You know, the prophet Isaiah tells us there's nothing about Jesus, about his physical appearance, that you'd look at him and you'd say, yeah, that's the leader, that's the guy. No, there's nothing about his physical appearance. And he's not wearing anything fancy, right? He's, he's not dressed in these fine robes. He's just wearing the normal clothes of the day. Looks like a carpenter, perhaps. And so, Pilate, I imagine he's thinking, really, this guy? He's the guy you're so worried about? He's, he's, he's the one? I mean, 
He's maybe he's saying something crazy, but, but really? And so he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes. It, it, it is as you say. I mean, you, you say so yourself. And, and the religious leaders at that point, they go crazy, right? They, they're stirred up into this frenzy, and the chief priests are accusing him. And, okay, hey, there it is. I mean, he's guilty. Let's go ahead. Let's move this thing along. Let's get him to the cross. I mean, that, that, that's the whole point of this thing. How fast can we get Jesus to the cross? But Pilate, he doesn't seem so sure of all this. And so he asks Jesus again. I mean, do you hear the charges they're making against you, Jesus? Do you hear everything they're saying to you? Do you hear all these accusations that they're just like throwing at you? I mean, what do you, what do you have to say for yourself? How, how, what kind of defense are you going to offer? And Jesus just stays quiet. He doesn't say anything. Pilate's amazed by the whole thing. He's astounded, really. How can you not say anything? Because Pilate's looking at this, and I imagine he sees all these powerful religious people yelling all this stuff. And this just looks like a humble man in front of him. Like, is all this really true? I imagine there's this doubt in Pilate's mind. Well, how come you're not offering a defense? How come you're not saying anything? But this was all to fulfill prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7 said that Jesus went like a lamb to the slaughter. He stood before his shearers silent. And so Pilate goes before the multitude. And there was an interesting kind of custom in those days. You remember it's Passover week. And during Passover, we talked about Passover. Uh, during Passover, to kind of a visual aid of what Passover was, just to remind them, they had a custom where they would release one prisoner. It was just to remind them how, how God had passed over the sins of the Hebrew children and allowed them to live even though they were oppressed in Egypt. And so now they're going to pass over the sins of one criminal and they're going to allow him to go free. Just this visual reminder of what God has done for them. And so Pilate asked, he said, do you want to continue with the custom? Do you want to do this? And they, Yeah, yeah. And Pilate is thinking in his mind, surely the crowds are going to say, release Jesus. Because the other option is this murderous terrorist Barabbas. Nobody's choosing that guy back on the streets, right? Give me the guy who maybe talks a little crazy, claims to be a king of the Jews, and you look at him, he doesn't look like king of anything. Yeah, let's put that guy on the streets. What's he going to do? But this guy who's out there murdering people, why are you going to put him back on the streets? But what does the crowd say? Oh, release Barabbas. Release Barabbas. Pilate is no dummy, Okay? He knows what's going on. He sees through everything here. And he says it's because of envy and because of jealousy of the religious leaders. This is just some selfish power grab so that they can retain control. That's why this is happening. By the way, this power grab, this struggle, this wasn't unique to the time of Jesus. right? We, we've, we've seen it repeated in the history of the church. Uh, one example for you. Um, in the 1800s, probably the most well-known preacher from the 1800s was a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He preached over in London, and uh, he, he arrived in London when he was 20 years old, took over a church there. It, it grew to over 6,000 people. Now, the other pastors in London, they didn't like that so much. Think, Spurgeon gets way too many people. And what's even worse, he's young and he's self-taught. He didn't even go to seminary. Like, this is messed up. And so they conspire together, and they appeal to the Baptist Union. 
of which Spurgeon was a, Spurgeon was a part, okay? Spurgeon was a Baptist himself. And they, they appeal to the Baptist Union, and they say, we, we need to censor this guy. And the Baptist Union says, you know what? You're right, we do. Because they were jealous, they were envious that Spurgeon was getting all the people, and so they censor him. Essentially, they label him a heretic, trying to dissuade people from hearing the Prince of Preachers, as he's known, Charles Spurgeon, preach. Well, we see it repeated time and time again in the history of the church, but you know what? It's not, it, we see it repeated in our own lives as well, don't we? These moments of envy, these moments of jealousy, where we look, we look at our lives, and we think, I should be further. Like, I should have, with, I've worked hard. I mean, I deserve this. I should have this. And so we play the comparison game. And we look at what other people have, and we think, I'd, I'd kind of like that. Now, this is what's happening here. The religious leaders, they're looking at Jesus. They're saying the masses are coming out to hear him. We'd like that. Look at the power he has to do miracles. And so they, they, they like, we, we'd like that. And so this is part of their motivation. And Pilate sees right through it. And how do you conquer jealousy? Jesus shows us the example. You conquer jealousy with humility. Right? If you struggle with jealousy, understand, you conquer jealousy with humility. You think of yourself less, and you think of Christ more. And you find your identity in Christ. And then something happens. Your aim shifts. It's no longer about how can I get ahead and what's good for me. Your, your aim shifts to simply wanting to magnify Christ. And wanting to see him, him high and lifted up. And his, his name magnificent. Now I tell you, I, I pray for revival in Portsmouth all the time. I don't really care if the revival starts at Central, be honored, and it would be great if it did. I just want it to happen, right? Whether it's here or, or somewhere else. Let's just see revival in our city. And it, it takes humility to conquer jealousy. The crowd, they're stirred up by the religious leaders. And they, they just go along with, the, with the, what the religious leaders are telling them. And so they're, they're chanting when Pilate asks, okay, what do you want me to do with Jesus then? Crucify him. Crucify him, they keep yelling. It's so interesting. They'll happily set a murderer, an insurrectionist, back on the streets because of what the religious establishment was telling them about Jesus. And since we're talking about religious leaders and what they say, one, one, one point that I want to make and I think it's important to say this, is don't blindly assume that just because someone stands behind a pulpit or someone has a seminary degree or somebody just seems like a really nice person, that everything they say about God is true. Okay? It's, it's not always. Right? I really hope that you don't just say, you know, well, Steve said. No, I, I hope it's the Bible, right, that you go back and you say, not, not that you're a skeptic or trying to like, oh, well, I, th I think he missed this little point. Not, not, not like that. But is what, is what Steve preaching, is what is preached at Central, is it true? Is this what the Bible says? Is it honoring? Right? Because th this is what, you remember when Paul preached in Berea? He preached in Berea. And what do the Bereans do? They go back and they open up the Old Testament. And they're just asking the question, is everything Paul's saying, is that really right? Is, is he giving us a straight shot here? And yeah, he is. So now they're encouraged. Uh, 
the religious leaders are telling the religious crowd, Jesus is the guilty one. And what does the religious crowd do? They blindly and mindlessly and foolishly just go along with it. And so they are just as guilty as the leaders because they didn't study the scriptures for themselves. They didn't stop to really ask the question, is what they're telling us true? Pilate, he puts up before them Barabbas. Barabbas, you know, his name means son of the rabbi. That's what Barabbas means. It's possible that one of the religious leaders who were accusing Jesus was actually the father of Barabbas. We don't know, but it's possible. That's his name. What we do know is that he was part of a gang in those days called the Sicari. The Sicari was this band of uh, basically zealots, okay? And Sicari means dagger under the cloak. And what they would do is they'd hide a dagger under the cloak. When they would find a member of the Roman opposition, they would kill him. This is what, this is what Barabbas is engaging. He's trying to kill Romans. And, and here's Pilate now. And he's seeing through the charade of everything that's going on. And he knows what kind of evil oppressor or terrorist that Barabbas is. And if, you know, I mean, he's a Roman. He, if anybody, he'd probably want Barabbas, like, executed, not Jesus. But for fear of the crowd, and just wanting to kind of keep the peace, Pilate just goes along with the charade. I mean, he knows it's a charade. He's asking the people, what evil has Jesus done? I mean, what's he guilty of really? He knows nothing. But in order to satisfy the crowd, he releases Barabbas. He's a coward. He's complicit. Just like the religious leaders, just like the religious crowds. Listen, crowds will always tell you how to think and what you should think. The masses will come around and they will tell you, here's how you should think about gender. Here's how you should think about marriage. Here's how you should think about parenting. Here's how you should think about technology. Here's how you should think about politics. Here's how you should think about family. Here's how you should think about church. And they will go and they will tell you how to think about everything in life. This is what the masses do. And by the way, Sometimes we think, we have this, with this idea that it's just the masses out there. It's the talking heads on media or whatever telling us how to. It's not just that. Sometimes it's religious crowds here. You see here with Jesus? It's not the Roman oppressors who are going to the crowd saying, oh, we got to get rid of Jesus. It's the religious people, the religious leaders telling the religious crowds what to think about Jesus. Now, there's a lot of church people who tell us what to think about church, for example. But understand that sometimes what they're telling us is not really biblical. Why? What has happened? They've gone to church. They've gone to church. They've gone to church. And they had this photocopy, this idea of what they think church ought to look like, how things ought to be scheduled, what ought to happen, what makes a good church, all these things. And what, they, what the people haven't done is gone back to the scriptures and said, God, what do you tell me about church? Well, who, what do you say the church is? And one of the first things that you'll see, one of the very first things, is we got a whole bunch of people telling us that we go to church. And what does the Bible tell us? 
that we are the church. Why do people like me tell you that you go to church instead of you are the church? So that people like me can keep the power. That's just what it is. Because now I control it. Now you come here, you listen to me, and now that's good. What does the Bible say? You are the church. Like, your job is not to invite people here and then I get to try to make them saved. You're empowered to make disciples. That's who you are. That's who we are. So, so we have to just go back in everything we do. Am I believing what I'm believing because people have told me to think this way, to believe this way? Or am I believing what I'm believing because I am informed biblically and I understand what God tells me to think? You've got to go everything back to the scriptures. This is the challenge. Do not follow the crowds. Follow the scriptures. Do not follow the crowds. Follow the scriptures. What happened to Jesus? Crowd think. The religious leaders whips up a religious crowd. It's all crowd think. The crowd, Pilate feels the pressure of the crowd. He just capitulates. It's all what the crowd is doing. We must be people who follow the scriptures, not the crowds. Pilate gave in to the crowd, and what would happen next is the inhumane torture of Jesus. I don't want to be overly gory with you this morning, but I do want you to have an accurate understanding of what happened to Jesus on the cross and what Mark is talking about, because he's using language that for us in our day we, we might not understand, but the people in those days, they got it exactly. Mark, Mark says that Pilate handed Jesus over to be scourged. Scourging, history tells us, was called the halfway death. What would happen is a, a, a criminal who's found guilty he would, be, he would be scourged, and basically he'd be beaten into an inch of his life. Roman soldiers would take uh, these short, kind of thick sticks, and on the end of the stick there would be straps of leather tied to it. And on the end of the straps of leather they would sew pieces of glass or, or metal. And then they would take the prisoner and they'd strip them naked and they would bound him to a post. And you get two big, burly Roman soldiers one on his left, one on his right. And they would take turns just whipping his back with, this, with this, um, this, this instrument. And it would just tear off chunks of flesh from his back. He said 40 lashes would kill a man, so they usually did 39. Many criminals died just from that. By the time it was over, most criminals would be delirious. They wouldn't be able to think. They wouldn't be able to see straight. And this was Jesus. His, his, his back just laid raw, nothing left. And if that's not enough, then the mockery begins. And they begin taunting Jesus. And Jesus is standing there in utter humiliation. He's been stripped naked. They, show, they throw over his shoulders what is essentially a purple rag. Okay? I mean, you may have an idea if it's a robe, but the, the language is very clear. It, it's, it's just a rag. It probably didn't even reach his elbows. It was all in jest. It was purple because those were royal colors. But it was, it, was, it was just mocking him as if he's, since he's claimed to be king. Yeah, let's see what kind of king you are. And they weave together a crown of thorns and they press it into his forehead so his forehead would begin to bleed. And the people there, they're just falling over themselves, just taunting him, humiliating him bowing down before him in mockery, hail king of the Jews, they're yelling out. 
It's all a joke to them. They're taking reeds and they're whipping him in the head as if he hasn't gone through enough. They're spitting on him. This is the scene that Mark gives us in just vivid detail what our Savior went through. And understand, this is what Mark has been building up to throughout his gospel, especially the second half of his gospel. It's all been about the suffering that Jesus would endure. And so how many times have we taught where Jesus is telling his disciples, I must suffer? The suffering is coming, and you will one day suffer. It's all leading up to suffering. Listen, if someone were to ask any of us, why the cross? Why, well, I mean, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Our first response would likely be because to pay for our sins. He, he did what we could never do for ourselves. We could never pay for it. But he did. He took all of our sin upon himself, and he paid the price for our sin on the cross. And rightly so. That's completely right. That's what Matthew writes about. That's what Luke writes about. That's what John writes about. That's not what Mark writes about. When Mark talks about the cross, he's pointing to something different. Even back when he introduces Jesus, okay? You remember John the baptizer when he sees Jesus coming? He makes this grand statement. Behold the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world. Mark leaves that part out. He's not connecting the cross to the payment for our sin. That's not his aim. Mark's aim is to show Jesus and in showing Jesus, showing us what it looks like to be authentically human. And so Mark portrays Jesus as the suffering servant, the example for how we ought to suffer ourselves, how we ought to lay down our lives. He's showing us the cost of discipleship. He's saying this is what's coming if you're a follower of Christ. This is what following Christ looks like. This is what it means. This is how you're going to go through it. You're going to endure suffering like this. Now, you know, through the history of the church, it's been Mark's gospel that men and women who have been martyred have gone to for encouragement because they see in Jesus this suffering servant. Chuck Colson, if you're familiar with him, he tells a story about a guy named Maximilian Kolbe. Kolbe was a Polish religious leader, and the Nazis came to him during World War II, and they said, hey, you can't be teaching people about Jesus. Kolbe, he didn't care. You know, he continues to, to preach. And so they arrest him, they take him to Auschwitz. And while he's in Auschwitz, one of the commanders, they, they just arbitrarily chose people to die on certain days. And so they had chosen a man to die on this day. And Colby stands up and says, I, I will die in his place. And instead of that man dying, I will die. And so the commander, he, he didn't know what to make of this. Like, who, who's just going to stand up and willingly die for somebody else? But he acquiesced, he takes Colby, parades him over He's forced to strip naked, takes off his pants, his shirt, and he, he begins to say how uh, Christ died on a cross naked. It is only fitting that I suffer as he suffered. You know, one of the greatest values that we hold in America is this value of safety and comfort. And we look at a value like suffering. And we think, well, suffering's no value. I mean, no, nobody signs up for that. 
And we think anybody who would, they're the weird ones. I want you to understand, in the history of the church, we are the weird ones, okay? You go all the way back to Acts. And in the book of Acts, what's happening? I mean, they're, they're getting uh, beaten and tortured and everything because of their faith in Jesus. And then they leave, and you got Peter and Paul, and they're, they're, uh, uh, they're, they're high-fiving each other, Peter and John. They're, they're so excited that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. The early church, it is filled. I mean, you read about the early church. It's filled with people who just counted it a, a privilege to be able to suffer for Christ. The medieval church, we read about Huss this morning, or talked about it anyway. Uh, same thing. And in fact, it's still true in much of the church around the world today. I was in India several years ago. And when I was in India, I was training some pastors over there. And one of the things I noticed is with all these pastors, they had scars on their, on their faces. And I asked the translator, I just asked the translator, hey, how did all these guys, how, did, how, did, how come they all have scars on their faces? Is this some kind of like ritual or something? Like what's going on? And he tells me, he says, no, all, all these pastors are very faithful men and they've, they've gone to these Hindu tribes and villages trying to share Jesus with people. And then the Hindu chiefs would become very territorially and upset and they would send their henchmen out there uh, to get them and to beat them uh, so that they would never come back and try, to, try this again. And I, and I looked at the translator. I said, can you ask them? Can you ask these pastors, like, were they afraid to go and do they regret going? And so the interpreter, he asks the pastors and before they say anything, they just start laughing. They're all laughing. Before they even respond to my question, they're laughing. And then comes the answer. Are you kidding me? We just rejoice that we were worthy to suffer in the same manner that Jesus Christ suffered. You understand? This is the perspective of the church. We've distorted it somehow in America to think that, that safety and security and comfort is the chief aim in life. No, Mark is writing and he's calling followers of Jesus to a life of suffering. That This is the cost of discipleship. Paul would later write to the Romans and he would say, don't you get it? Suffering develops perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Jesus was preparing his disciples to suffer. He's preparing us showing us how to suffer. And in God's economy, when you suffer Christianly, there is this perseverance that begins to develop. There's this depth of character that begins to take root. And the result of all of that is hope. Hope. The people who are most hope-filled, like my friends, those pastors over in India, oftentimes are those who have suffered the most because they've suffered Christianly. You suffer Christianly, and you end up with hope. It's amazing how God does that in his economy. I can't even explain it, really, how you could suffer and you end up with hope, but that's what God does. And if you've met anyone who suffers Christianly, not complaining, not begrudging, not saying, woe is me, or not, not counting it a joy to suffer, but, just, oh, well, you know, this is my lot in life, no, but people who suffer with joy, who suffer Christianly, they end up with hope. How do you get there? I think it starts because you remember 
you just have this huge, big view of who Jesus is. And you're just reminded of the fact that everything that I'm going through right now, whatever suffering I'm dealing with, man, Jesus went through 10 times as much. I mean, so much more. And he did all that for me. When I was his enemy, when I didn't deserve it, he did all that for me. I mean, Jesus is this king. He doesn't, he doesn't foment rebellion against Rome. He doesn't come and try to raise Israel to this national place of splendor so they can be a rival empire to the Roman occupation. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He wasn't a king like that. Here he is, the king of kings, and he comes to endure mockery willingly, to obediently choose the path of suffering. You know, there's no king who chooses to put himself last. There's no king who just takes on the role of suffering. There's no king who just willingly dies, much less dies on a cross, much less dies in isolation from and on behalf of his people. No king does that. What does the king do? You're my subjects. You go die for me. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus subjects himself to unbelievable suffering. He chose the path of suffering to die on a cross in isolation from and on behalf of his people. However, if you just end there, I don't think you quite get to hope. Because all that tells me is Jesus can sympathize with me. And that's nice. It's good, but I need more than just sympathy. I don't know about you. I need more than sympathy, right? If all Jesus can do is sympathize, that's not really, you know, I told you before, if someone comes and they sympathize with you and that's all they can do for you, now all you do is now you got two people sad, you know? Oh, great. You're just as miserable as I am. Okay, let's just in our misery be together. What leads you to hope is Revelation 19. When you see that Jesus comes again, the king of glory, not in robes of mockery, but in robes of majesty, not carrying reeds to whip us in the head, but the royal diadem, the crown to declare that he is Lord of all. See, suffering brings hope. And this is what Mark is trying to get his disciples, the disciples, and now us to understand. It's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand that suffering When you suffer Christianly, it results in hope. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you would take the place of suffering on our behalf. An inhumane type of suffering, a type of suffering that most of us can't even comprehend. And you suffered it all unjustly. It would have been right for us to experience that. Because we deserved it, but you didn't deserve any of it. And so God, forgive us for when we prioritize our lives around comfort and safety. God, we, we neglect the value that you show us, this cost of discipleship, of suffering. And God, how you turn suffering to hope, it's incredible. But God, I, I pray that we, the church in America, begins to understand that and begins to live it. In order to get there, God, we desperately need your help. So I ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ.